From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. This hour, U.S. Marine Captain Randy Kramer is standing by with the most remarkable, some might say unbelievable story of his career in the secret space program, which included a training mission on the moon starting at the age of four, followed by a rather lengthy combat tour on the Red Planet as part of the Mars Defense Force. In the second hour, a tribute to the late Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who sadly passed away earlier this summer. Owen Wolf is my technical producer, Ryan White, my live stream producer. And we now have over 17,000 subscribers, so let's get this to 20,000 as soon as we can. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. If you have, tell your friends, co-workers, neighbors, family members, casual acquaintances. Coming up in two weeks, John Barber, the godfather of reality TV, the creator and host of Real People, a three-time Emmy Award-winning television and film critic, and a passionate JFK assassination researcher, will be here live in studio and for the full two hours. John was uh, on the program back in mid-August, but I wasn't here, so he got to speak with guest host Don Jeffries. But I wanted to bring him back so I could have a chance to talk to talk to this remarkable man, and he happens to be in town, so that's two weeks from tonight. I'm not sure yet what we have lined up for next week. All right, let's get to it, shall we? Captain Randy Kramer is going public with his testimony about his service for the Mars Defense Force. The MDF is part of the Earth Defense Force, a UN unacknowledged special access program. His recruitment in 1987 into the U.S. Marine Corps Special Section began a 20-year tour of duty working for the Mars Defense Force, which is the primary defense unit that protects the Mars Colony Corporation. Kramer says he's been allowed to speak publicly about his experiences. Randy Kramer, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Richard. And let's just begin with your incredible story. And it is incredible when we're talking about a secret space program and serving time on Mars and and the moon and so forth. But just walk me through the process of how you were able to recall these these memories. Was it through hypnosis? How did you recover these memories? Oh, that's a long, complicated answer to that question. I'll see if I can't make it uh, much shorter than it should be if I was to be complete with that. So uh, I would say that the end of my tour, which is right where the suppression, uh, memory suppression technology takes place. Some people often call it a memory wipe, but it's not really. It's just a suppression of, of memories so that you don't remember what happened or you think you were having a dream or any other number of odd things that can occur, how you feel about it. I would say, though, rather immediately I was experiencing uh, dreams, memories, flashes, um, traumatic shocks, and so forth that someone would be experiencing from a post-traumatic experience. So I would say that the memories were bleeding through almost right away, but it was over probably a decade before I started to... Uh, understand that there was a bigger picture of what was happening underneath there to kind of get at it. So it was a, it was a lengthy process. I mean, um, I would say the full memory recovery, it was, uh, you know, almost 15, 17 years or something like that. It was a really lengthy process, but combination of, 
you know, a lot of meditative uh, exercises going into alpha theta states in order to get into those memories. Did a few hypnotherapy sessions. I really didn't find them that necessary, but a few that I did were helpful. Uh, but for the most part, it really was just about using the skills that I understood how my own mind worked and going into deep memory places and pulling the memories up and sifting through them. And I cannot understate the thousands and thousands, literally, of hours that it took for me to do this. So it was, it was not in any way, shape, or form a, a quick process, an easy process, um, a simple process. It was absolutely one of the longest, most complicated, arduous processes I've ever had to engage in solving a problem in my entire life. But um, it was very important to me because I knew that remembering was very important. And so uh, even though I knew I was kind of chasing something ephemeral the whole time, I was very dedicated to the process because I knew that even though I couldn't quite remember everything that had occurred, I knew that remembering it was maybe the most important thing that I could possibly do. So that's the shortest answer maybe I can give to uh, an answer that really just took decades to sort out. So that's a complicated one. And it was, I'm guessing there must have been a, a, a personal cost, per, personal, perhaps a professional cost, in order to go through this process to get at the truth. What did you give up? What did you lose? Wow, like probably everything for a couple of decades. I mean, I, I went through uh, relationships, um, and friendships and distance from certain family members, um, lost jobs because of it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much, you could say over a few decades, it cost me just about everything in the process. But like I said, it was, I, I knew that it was more important than anything to remember. So as costly as all of those things are, uh, I wouldn't trade remembering for anything, but it was a very, yeah, very costly process. So let's start, I guess, at the beginning, Project Moonshadow. You talk about being four years old and you're training for the SSP, the Secret Space Program, and you were recruited involuntarily. How did that, how does a four-year-old get caught up in this? And why you? Sure. Uh, there's a little nuance here that uh, is easy for people to miss, which is that I was genetically engineered from the ground up for this program. So it wasn't so much accurate to say that I was recruited at a young age so much as that I was engineered and born into the program. Let's drill down on that idea a little bit. I mean, how did this happen that you were essentially born into this program? Tell me about your parents, I guess, in this case. Well, my parents weren't exactly voluntary participants in this process either. Uh, in fact, I, I don't know that any of the families uh, involved were voluntary. Uh, this was a process which families were identified by genetic markers and families that were seen fit to have certain genetic markers were then set aside to, uh, for genetic samples from the mother and father to be taken, uh, blended together in sort of a test tube environment, and then to have um, certain codons removed excuse me, and then replaced by extraterrestrial DNA uh, to enhance uh, certain physical, mental abilities. So, yeah, it was uh, not really a voluntary process on anyone's part. It was just sort of uh, done. And then you're taken in from your bed at night. Uh, 
so is is this I mean it sounds an awful lot like an alien abduction well they're using really similar technology to be honest with you so um, I would say for the most part uh, wormholes jump gates were used so I would often wake up because the implants in my head would click on and would wake me up and a wormhole or jump gate would appear in the wall or closet door of my room. A couple technicians would walk through. Uh, I was quite familiar with the process, so I'd get up, they'd walk me through the jump gate and then take me to a training session or to a facility where I would go through a training protocol and then return. How were you treated? Were they, were they kind? Were they cold? Uh, I mean, I was a soldier, I, I, so I wouldn't say that they were unnecessarily cruel or mean, but we certainly weren't coddled. So uh, I, I would say we were treated fair and firm. And where was this base on the moon? Well, Luna Operations Command is on the backside, and I, I honestly have been there, but I could not even tell you what the actual scope of the facility is. So uh, other other than saying that it took some place near underneath the surface at Luna Operations Command, I couldn't be more specific than that. And there, how many of, the, uh, of you were there? Uh, there were 300 test subjects, uh, children uh, who were put into the program. I'm not sure how many auxiliary personnel. What was a typical day of training like? What did you do? Do you remember? Well, I mean, it changed over time. So the younger we were, the more the training resembled games, physical conditioning, uh, puzzle testing, things like that. And as we got older, then, you know, it became practice weaponry and then you know live fire ammo weaponry high-tech weaponry so it was it was an evolving process when we were very young it was just said games uh and by the time we were in our early teens it was you know um full-size adult weapons and uh, high-tech weapons including plasma rifles and rail guns and stuff like that and and did you develop relationships with your um your classmates, I guess, for lack of a better term, your fellow trainees? Uh, yes and no. I, I mean, we had a familiarity with one another due to the training protocols, um, but we didn't really spend time socializing. So I don't know how to describe what a relationship like that is, um, except that it's, it's sort of based on, it's task-oriented, it's professional-oriented, uh, you're not spending time, you know, talking about your favorite color, your favorite kind of ice cream. You, you're pretty much having conversations and relating in a way that's uh, task related. So, as odd as it may sound, this was a it was just a very squared off professional relationship with these people. And how long would these training uh, sessions last before you were sort of sent back to your bed? Anywhere from about. 12 hours to 7 or 8 days. And then you were sent back in time? So it was like if you disappeared on a Tuesday and you were gone for a week, they sent you back a week in time. Is that the idea? Right. You basically come back 15 minutes after you left. And each time was your memory wiped? No. The memory sort of suppressed and sort of separated at that point. So I can remember when I was young... Waking up after training sessions, um, but 
because I didn't have a context to understand that I had actually been to another place, even a memory of having been to another place would really just seem like a weird dream. So I would often wake up with these incredibly vivid, visceral uh, dreams about training programs and training protocols and peculiar locations and so forth and would just um, think that they were strange dreams. It really took me some years of my life later to realize that other people didn't have those dreams just, you know, out of course, that that was weird. At the time, it, it didn't seem out of course for me or, or, or strange, but later in life, I realized that that was a very strange thing. Who did you learn eventually was behind Project Moonshadow? Who was running that operation? I was run by United States Marine Corps Special Section. And there was no involvement of other countries, international groups, etc.? Um, to my understanding, it was a... a localized program, stateside program. There were some extraterrestrial scientists and engineers who helped us with the program, but it was pretty much uh, a stateside program only. And how long had that base been there on the moon? Oh, gosh. I think it was, uh, they started construction on that thing back in the 50s, 1950s. Randy Kramer is uh, with us here on The Conspiracy Show. Just a reminder, he'll be appearing at the Alien Cosmic Expo, which is taking place at the Airport Marriott Hotel here in Toronto, September 21-22. Randy will be speaking on the uh, the Sunday, the 22nd, at uh, 2.30 p.m., and then he'll be taking part in the, uh, the Speaker Roundtable, which is happening between 4 and 5 p.m., and people... Uh, can go to aliencosmicexpo.com, aliencosmicexpo, all one word, dot com for more information and uh, for tickets and to register. After Project Moonshadow, uh, after you complete your training, at what point are you sent to Mars, this colony on Mars? I was deployed to my actual tour of duty when I was 17 years old. <clears throat> um Technicians came through a jump gate like normal. I figured it was a normal training exercise, but it wasn't. I got taken to Luna Operations Command for a physical exam, psych eval, sign the contract, and then get put on a transport ship that took us to Mars. How long did that journey take? <sighs> Ten minutes. Uh, the, ship, the ship took a jump gate, so the ship itself sort of Everybody boarded it, it exited the hangar, and then it took a jump gate and was there in a matter of minutes. Now, the uh, well, describe this this uh, installation on Mars. There's a number of c- colonies there, right? Five, I think the number was? I, I don't know how many colonies there are on the moon at all. I only know of uh, the L7 colony, and there are, to my, there were, to my knowledge, uh, five or six colonies on Mars, but we're not sure how many of them are fully operational at this time. Right. And and the group on Mars, now this is an international group, correct? Correct, yes. Tell me about it. Uh, it's broken down into a lot of umbrellas. So uh, the colonies are run by an outfit called the MCC or the Mars Colony Corporation, the Mars Colony Corporation operates under the umbrella of the ICC, which is the International Corporate Conglomerate, which operates under the umbrella of 
um, the sort of loosely put together covert military space program activity, which is a combination of military programs, corporate programs, uh, global cooperative programs that are not always cooperating. That gets complicated, um, but it's it, it gets a little it can can get a little confusing and a little messy because it's not like one organization that just runs everything. So, but it's not just the United States, right? There are other countries involved: Germany, Russia. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, d- depending on how long any individual participating countries have been participating might depend on just how developed their own space program or their own participation is. But you have participation with most of what we would call the sort of G20 countries. But but it's kind of ironic, and I think you've pointed this out, is that here we have the United States, Russia, China, cooperating on Mars, yet back here on Earth, uh, you know, they're not exactly getting along. So what's happening there? That's an interesting dynamic. This has always been one of those really interesting things that, to me, is kind of like understanding a relationship of oil and water. Uh, and if you anybody who's ever taken a high school chemistry class, you may have had a, a chemistry teacher have a, a flask full of an oil and water and watch them how they just don't mix together no matter what you do in the same vessel. And in some ways, what you have here is you have these covert military space programs operating together, and then you have normal operational state government, and they're kind of like oil and water. There is a place where they do connect, but not in the way that some people would think that they would. So uh, most people who are going about their day-to-day social government, economic business in the various countries of the world are doing so from the perspective that there is no such thing as a covert military space program because they're not in on the know of it. Those who are in on the know of it are the ones who are responsible for sort of tying the loose ends together. But for most individuals who are in the regular operational governments, militaries, uh, they're absolutely clueless about covert military space program activity. So uh, it's kind of an oil and water thing. They just don't mix, for the most part, the way that they have set up operations over the over the decades for them to be very separate. And so you're now, uh, you're a captain in the U.S. Marines stationed on Mars, correct? Not at that time, no. I, I started as an enlisted person, came in as a private, and had to claw my way up through the, through the ranks before I made captain. And, and again, uh, at night, you're transported uh, back to your bed, or, or are they, at this point... Are they taking you? Uh, are they still taking you from your bedroom, or are you are you uh, you know somewhere else? Do you mean currently, or do you mean when I was no on when my, when, you, when you were on when you were stationed on Mars? Oh right, yeah. right, certainly. No, no, I was there twenty four seven. I lived there for seventeen years, so there was no coming back and forth. We got sent, and we stayed there until we were done. My word, and. Again, this is this must be so unbelievable to many people listening and incredible. Um, I mean, were you able to bring back anything, any that that might substantiate or corroborate these claims? For example, uh, I don't know, a battle scar or uh, some sort of an implement, a tool, some documentation. Well, I, I, people like to ask questions like that, but I 
need to convey that there's simply no way in which that could happen. It's not a situation where I have my own backpack and my own clothes and, and I'm not completely searched or stripped down or, or, or put from one uniform to another by other personnel, which is what's happening. So there, e- even if I had uh, taken some item that I thought that I could sneak back and shoved it into an orifice hoping that I could sneak it back, they still would have found it and I still wouldn't have been able to bring it back. So now I do have a, a couple of dog tag implants behind my ears I'm hoping to get removed and looked at. So, you know, we're hoping to have some evidence in that sense at some point. There's a paperwork process we're going through that some point we expect there to be a settlement. But, yeah, it's just it's a very clean process, meaning uh, the, the organizers of this process have made sure in a quite sanitary way that there is nothing that you take with you that they don't want you to take with you, and there is nothing you bring back that they don't want you to bring back. All right, Randy, we'll take a time out. When we come back, we'll uh, find out what you and the, the other troops were doing on Mars. What was your your stated purpose? We'll do that on the other side. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Randy Kramer stays with us. Marine Captain Randy Kramer telling his astonishing story of being stationed on Mars in an underground military facility. So what was the purpose of you being on Mars and the other troops? Well, it was a stated purpose that we were there to protect a perimeter around the colonies. But over time, what I began to understand was that our primary purpose there was to test weapons technology. So we weren't really there so much to protect anybody so much as we were to have uh, regular kerfuffles with the locals in order to perfect military hardware. And you were staying at the what was called the main settlement, which was the first Earth settlement there. Tell me about Ares. Oh, no, no, no. no. We, I, was, I was never... I mean, Ares Primus is the headquarters of the MCC and where the colonies are, but I mean, I've been to Ares Primus, but I've never been to the colonies proper. Ah. So we were at a, a forward operating station called uh, Forward Station Zebra, uh, which it was way north. Uh, so no, I was actually never stationed at the colonies. I've never been inside the colonies. Don't even know what they look like other than what they've been reported to be by other persons. And uh, really the stops at Ares Primus were not much more than stops. So you were not allowed to, to mix uh, to, with with the, the settlers, I guess we can call them. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah, yeah, we were kept very separate from them. But, but do you know, what can you tell me about these settlements? I mean, how are they organized? What can you tell me about the people, uh, you know, the types of skills and the types of people that were recruited to colonize Mars? That's a slightly complicated question to answer because the colonies are separated by nation states. So uh, the first sort of, you know, whatever it was, five or six uh, nation states that were able to financially put the wherewithal together to build a colony were able to build the first colonies, which have financially struggled over the years, from my understanding. Um, Because they're run by different nation states, which have different social political ideas about how to run a colony, which includes economic system, social structure, uh, it, they're all run very, very differently. And because I, again, have never been there, I couldn't be more specific other than to say that there 
interesting socioeconomic experiments run by the countries who have started the individual colonies uh, to see what works and what doesn't. And so there have been some financial struggles. There was a worker revolt. We're really not sure what's happening across the board right now. There's a lot of um, not information that's flowing clearly to and from the colonies right now. And were you also there to to stake out a portion of Mars as a, as U.S. territory? Well, we certainly were under the impression that we were being territorial, that we had a territory that was ours to protect, to defend anything that came uh, to incur upon that territory. We, you know, met, reached out to meet them, fight them on the field of battle if necessary. Uh, but... Again, it turns out that that just wasn't really the purpose in the end. I think a lot of that territorial questions were arbitrary based on tactical decisions on where the best places to test military equipment were, more so rather than it being an actual necessary territorial you know, location that we were securing territory with. Uh, I think that, to be honest, the technology that protects the colonies proper from any proper invasion is probably a little more high-tech than just soldiers in battle armor, to be honest with you. So um, I'm not sure exactly what they're using to protect the colonies, but I think it's um, a bit more of an iron fist than just guys in body armor. One of the most remarkable things that you that you learned uh, on Mars was that the you say the atmosphere, the air there is breathable. Tell me about that. Oh, sure. Uh, it's thin. Uh, the farther north you go, the thinner it gets. So think of it kind of like a high plains, uh, mountainous environment as far as what the air is, you know, the thinness quality of the air. But it's certainly breathable. Uh, when we were towards the equator, uh, the temperature outside, you know, felt like it in broad daylight midday was well into the 50s, maybe low 60s Fahrenheit. Uh, and then certainly when we were up farther north, it was much, much colder, closer to freezing more often than not. But yeah, breathable, just thin. Yet we're told Mars has no atmosphere, virtually no atmosphere. Well, that's actually not completely true either. There's this interesting um, way in which NASA has been uh, telling us information about the quality of life that we understand or the quality of the atmosphere and so forth that we understand it to be over time. And so if you go back to the Viking lander, even though there was an experiment on the lander that demonstrated that there was uh, microbes in the soil, which is demonstrating that there was a gaseous environment that they could live in, they tried to tell you, oh, no, wait, there's really not a livable environment. And then some time later, a few years back, we end up, they say, oh no, wait, wait, now we think there's uh, water droplets that form and little rivulets of running water, so we think there's actually some water on the surface. And then like, oh, oh wait, now we've discovered there's an underground lake that uh, might have a whole bunch of water in it. And then they're like, oh wait, uh, the mass gas spectrometer shows that there is actually signs of oxygen and carbon dioxide and moisture in the environment. And there may be livable atmosphere there right now. And then, oh, wait, now there's actually underground oceans. So most people have not been following these stories, but I have. And so some of these also have sort of come out in what we call the kind of 
back in the days when people used to read newspapers, uh, a 12D story, meaning uh, when they wanted to bury a story back in the old newspaper days, they would just put it on section D, page 12, because nobody hardly ever reads that section. So some of these articles were not front page news stories, were not, you know, things that were spread across the Internet. They were more quietly uh, mentioned, and if you weren't paying attention, then it completely would have gone over your head. But the truth is, uh, what they have admitted as of this point right now is that there's water, there's frozen water, there's water under the ground, there's potentially livable atmosphere uh, with moisture, oxygen, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, um, and sources of under, vast sources of underwater water, under uh, underground water. Sorry. So that's what they've admitted so far is what's there. Now they still haven't quite said, "Oh yeah, there's an oxygen environment." But my favorite quote uh, when they put this article about uh, about looking through the mass gas spectrometer and the telescopes of seeing that there was actually uh, atmosphere, that there was uh, live, uh, breathable gases, potentially moisture. The quote from the director of NASA at that time in the article said, we may have to accept that there is livable atmosphere on Mars right now. That was the director of NASA at the time in his own words in that article. So they've actually been telling us quite a bit. They're just doing it so quietly and so subtly that most people don't know that. Were you living above or, or below ground? Definitely below ground. Uh, we lived inside a mountain. Were you anywhere near Sidonia, and had, had you or had you visited Sidonia? Never been there, and we were way farther north than that for sure. Was there any talk about Sidonia? No, not not that I ever heard of. Hmm. So, tell me what, what's a, a, a typical day uh, when you're in this outfit on Mars? Are, are you are you? Conducting military exercises. What are you doing mainly? A typical day is either train, 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 or patrol, patrol, patrol. And if things get exciting, then fight, fight, fight. But that's mostly it. Uh, you train, we patrol, we eat, we sleep, we poop, we fight, and that was about it. Uh, and we'll talk about who you were fighting uh, coming up in just a few moments because we're, uh, we're coming into a break here. Uh, but just tell me about your, your weaponry. What kind of weapons did you have? primary weapon was a rail gun, which is a magnetically propelled uh, rifle. It, people don't know what that is. It's a series of electromagnetics, electromagnets, I'm sorry, that turn off and on rapidly, uh, take a magnetic projectile, and it hurls it down the end of the barrel uh, in a little magnetic field. So you get this incredibly fast flying projectile out the end of the barrel with out a chemical explosion, which is where you get that kickback from. So you get this very steady shot uh, that you also have a very low heat generation. So the two main problems with a regular bullet is uh, jumping, the barrel jumping from the kickback from the chemical explosion and overheating from the chemical explosion. So a magnetically propelled rifle solves both those problems. All right, we'll uh, we'll take a time out. We will come back and talk about the enemy combatants in this remarkable story. Captain Randy Kramer, U.S. Marine captain stationed on Mars when the conspiracy show continues right after this. I'm Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Message and data rates may apply. Individual results may vary. Exclusions apply. 
But hey, I'm buying a huge flat screen TV so I can finally see it without my glasses. Why not just get LASIK at the LASIK Vision Institute? That's what I'm doing. Uh, my glasses and contacts are a pain. I'd love to finally get rid of these, but who can afford LASIK? You can. Because the LASIK Vision Institute is offering dramatically low prices and an absolutely free consultation. Just text 255 to 350350. The LASIK Vision Institute has already performed over a million procedures. They use the latest FDA-approved LASIK technology that helps the majority of patients achieve 20-20 vision for a fraction of what others charge. Better vision, better value. The LASIK Vision Institute. Make this the year you finally get LASIK. For a free consultation plus an extra 20% discount, text DO55 to 350350. You'll see for free if LASIK is right for you. That's DO55 to 350350. Warning. If you're drowning in debt you can't afford, do not let the credit card companies trick you into thinking that you have to pay it all back. Because you don't. What the credit card companies don't want you to know is that there's actually a way to get debt-free without paying off your entire debt or going bankrupt. If you have $10,000 or more in credit card debt, you now have the right to let us settle that debt for a fraction of what you owe. For free information, call Credit Associates now. 1-800-959-5928. We'll even show you how much money you could save. If you can't afford to pay off all your debt, do not let the credit card companies trick you into thinking that you have to. Call Credit Associates now for free information on how to get debt-free faster than you ever thought possible without debt consolidation or bankruptcy. We depend on your success and offer a guarantee, so there's no risk. For free information, call now. 1-800-959-5928. That's 1-800-959-5928. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. So, Randy, you were talking about getting into these skirmishes and these heated battles. Who exactly or what exactly were you were you fighting? Well, primarily we were territorially adjoined to an indigenous insectoid species and an indigenous reptoid species. So... Most days it was either indigenous insectoids or indigenous reptoids. And, I mean, how organized were they? Were they evolved? Were they, uh, you know, did they have advanced technology? Uh, I consider both of the species in their own way to be incredibly evolved. Um, Their use of technology was certainly a little bit different than our own, uh, but they were highly intelligent, highly communicative, very advanced. Certainly their technological capabilities were very, very high. Uh, How they chose to exercise or use those technological abilities uh, has more to do with uh, them socially or as a species, but they were very advanced. And you described their living conditions uh, as hives or nests. Just explain a little bit more about that. Well, that's how they were described to us. Um, I consider them to be very well-developed living quarters. Uh, uh, the insectoids had really, really amazing interior architecture. I mean, they could dig out uh, a series of tunnels and chambers and that, you know, looked like they were done uh, by professional construction crews with, uh, you know, levels and, you know, able to smooth down the surfaces to... Um, I mean, it was just, 
it was more it was way more incredible than what I expected. I expected uh, to be more like an ant hive, you know, to sort of like rough around the edges and just rough tunnels dug into the dirt. And it was just not that at all. It was in incredibly uh, advanced engineering. The reptoids had done an amazing job of converting these caverns into uh, dwelling spaces since they'd been living underground for thousands of years, as I understand it. Um, developing these underground communities was pretty essential, but they live quite comfortably and quite well underground. Um, and again, there was the evidence of advanced technology to have created these spaces, but not necessarily the evidence of a lot of the use of that advanced technology. But in the case of the indigenous reptoids, this was really a personal choice. Uh, they felt since technology had nearly destroyed their planet that the excessive use of technology was in itself a negative cultural trait. And so they chose to believe that anything that they could do without having to use some form of advanced technology was better off than uh, creating a robot that they push a button or something with. So they, they had this very interesting idea about that. And, and how did these two indigenous groups get along? Did they did the reptoids fight with the insectoids, or were they united in their battles against you? Oh no, they fought all the time. Yeah, so uh, it, it was pretty much a three sided chess game in that way. So it was uh, depend, depending on the day, it could get very confusing. And. I mean, when these colonies were first established on, on Mars, did they initially get along with the indigenous insectoids and reptoids? And, and, and then, if so, what changed? I honestly couldn't tell you the, uh, that. I am not privy to the history of the colonies or pretty much anything that happened before I got there. But were the, were the insectoids and the reptoids uh, involved in skirmishes with the colonies or just with the, the military uh, groups? Again, when, when we were there, uh, we were engaging with them militarily on a regular basis. The colonies had been there for some years before I arrived there, and I simply can't say what was happening before I showed up there. Were you ever involved in, in sort of close proximity, like hand-to-hand -hand combat with these these creatures? I mean, how would you describe them, their physicality? Oh, yeah, all the time. Uh, the indigenous reptoids, uh, you know, they could be anywhere from about, you know, five and a half feet tall for a little one to almost seven feet tall for a big one. Um, the insectoids... The drones are about, again, maybe five, five and a half feet tall, but they tended not to engage in combat themselves. They preferred to engineer other insects to do their job for them. So we were more often when dealing with the insectoids facing swarms of beetles and things that they would send after us. It was really quite annoying. All right. We'll uh, take another time up. One more segment remains with Captain Randy Kramer right here on The Conspiracy Show.
corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with Randy Kramer, U.S. Marine Captain Randy Kramer, who will be appearing at the Alien Cosmic Expo, which is happening Saturday, September 21, Sunday, September 22, at the Airport Marriott Hotel here in Toronto. And Randy will be speaking on the Sunday, the 22nd, and uh, that's at uh, 2.30. And then uh, he'll be joining the uh, the roundtable discussion, which will cap things off at uh, the Alien Cosmic Expo. You can go to aliencosmicexpo.com for more information and uh, to register. So we're talking about these uh, insectoids and the, the reptoids. Now, are these the same species that some people have claimed to have encountered or have had contact with here on Earth or in sort of an abduction scenario? Are they involved in any of that? To my knowledge, no. Uh, to my knowledge, the indigenous insectoids and the indigenous reptoids uh, on Mars have no interest of anything happening outside their own world at this time. We do, however, on this planet, planet Earth, have our own indigenous insectoid species that are subterranean that live beneath our feet. We also have at least one indigenous uh, reptoid species that also lives beneath our feet that are pretty different uh, from the species from Mars, my understanding of that. Um, but my understanding, again, is, is that when uh, you're talking about abductions or other situations, that would not be the species from Mars. They're very, very um, isolationist in that way. They really don't have expansionist models or much interest in anything outside their own world. So tell me about the last battle that involved a considerable loss of life that you were involved with. Yeah, um, so... There were like four divisions. Uh, we got sent to a locale to retrieve an object, which, to be honest, I think the whole thing was just a ruse and was probably uh, designed to get rid of a bunch of people, including myself and the division that I was in. Um, so we, there was this, um, So it's kind of a big red round rock. If you, anyone who's ever seen Ayers Rock uh, in Australia, it was kind of similar to this big like round rock that sticks right out of the ground and um, like a big dome. And in this case, it had openings uh, around it at about clock positions. So there were a number of uh, entrances and tunnels that went down into the central chamber of this structure. You know, trying to identify what someone's alien architecture is sometimes is, is more guesswork than anything else. I would say, if I was to take a stab at it, that it might have been a temple of some kind or, or a, um, some sort of ancient sacred site. I'm just going to base that on what my trained observer eyes could tell me without being able to try and describe it to you because it was very different than anything I had ever seen before. Uh, and anyway, it just turned out to be a trap. And so uh, by the time that we're down in the middle, um, we find ourselves surrounded in um, a different tribe of indigenous reptoids swarming in by the thousands and basically just cutting everybody to pieces. Um, they had to use a... A jump gate that's normally reserved for ships, 
for ship travel uh, to get us out of there, they were able to um, create an opening right underneath our feet, so we sort of fell through this jump gate that, again, wasn't really designed for human travel. So a few people were caught in the edge of the event horizon, which uh, means their whole body did not make it through, so they perished. And there were, of the wounded uh, that made it, you know, there were less than three dozen. Of those who survived, I I can't say for sure, but I I doubt it was 100%. Um, But, you know, there were less than three dozen survivors from the entire incident. And this this raid on this sacred tunnel, this was, as you discovered, sort of in violation of some treaty. There there had been a peace treaty signed between the uh, the military and these indigenous groups, correct? Well, that's a good question. I mean, there was an armistice, to my understanding, but I couldn't tell you exactly which tribes were involved in that because just because one group of reptoids signs a treaty doesn't mean you have a treaty with every reptoid on the entire planet because they're very tribal so I'm not sure who we were had the armistice with who we didn't exactly whether this particular group was under the umbrella of that armistice or not that's all a gray area that I can't answer uh, it just what I can say is um, it was shenanigans of the highest order uh, and it shouldn't have probably gone down that way if it was a lawful operation of some kind and um, it certainly wouldn't have turned out the way that it was if I think it wasn't the intention for most or all of us not to make it through that day alive. So you, you uh, after you recovered from your injuries you spent the last three years of your tour there as a pilot. Tell me about that. Yeah, I sort of, uh, you know, kind of had this childhood dream get to come true, which is I got to be a pilot and I got to fly spaceships, which is pretty cool. So, yeah, um, I, I got a promotion, got to go, a commission, got to go to flight school, and, yeah, spent the rest of my career as a pilot in an air wing on the EDF-SS Nautilus, which is basically an aircraft carrier in space about a mile long kind of like a long cylinder hmm. so at a certain point um, they do this kind of reverse aging process on you so that you can be sent back to earth into your original timeline is that right yeah they call it age reversing but my understanding what they really do is just hatch you out a younger clone body of yourself and then transfer your consciousness into that clone body and then put you back and then throw your old body in the dumpster. Oh, is that all? <laughs> My word. Uh, so, you're reinserted back into your original timeline of, what, 1987? Correct. November time frame of 1987, correct. And what were you doing? I mean, you were, what, 17 at that time? I was still in high school. I was a senior in high school. Yeah. Right. Right. And then immediately some of these memories start to bleed through at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I would say right away. Um, It was just, again, without context, you know, I would just wake up from these experiences and think, wow, that was the weirdest, longest, strangest dream. Uh, And when I would have waking visions or other things going on, I would... um, Sometimes question whether I was having a, a sane or an insane moment, and other times 
you know, would sort of cognitive dissonance would kick in. And I can, I can assure you that, uh, the frontal lobe of my brain did not want to all of a sudden accept that this was going on and accept that there was this, uh, tip of the iceberg that I was experiencing and that there was something much deeper going on. My own cognitive dissonance was happy to go, Memories? What memories? I don't know what memories you're talking about. And and the the more that I can keep those things buried, believe me, my frontal lobe was perfectly happy to do that. We're just about out of time here, but I mean, were you in in addition to you know meditating and and so forth and trying to piece the story together? Were you able to uh, say, for instance, you know, uh, we're all familiar with the British uh, hacker Gary McKinnon and uh, his uh, discoveries in these Pentagon computers about you know, deep space platforms and so forth. Were you able to, to get a hold of any sort of documents that, that corroborated this story? Um, not yet. Like I said, there's a process uh, to retrieve paperwork that uh, we've been going through for a number of years. I was told at the beginning of the process that it could easily be a 10 or 15 year process where uh, maybe seven or eight years along that way, so uh, we'll see how much longer it might take. Any pushback? I mean, are you being uh, monitored? I mean, I, they can't be happy you're speaking out. Um, you know, my people don't mind. My people are the ones that asked me to speak publicly in the first place. So when you say they, I mean, that's a good question. There are certainly people who I work for who are thrilled about my speaking publicly, there are other people who are also probably very happy that I am speaking publicly, and then there are those that are not. So it kind of depends on whether you know they're the good guys or the bad guys. Good guys love me, bad guys hate me. So you know that lets me know whether I'm doing a good job or not. Randy, thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure, Richard. My tribute to Rosemary Ellen Guiley when The Conspiracy Show continues. Stay with us.